Hey, and welcome back to Transvox. And um, no Jenny today, I'm afraid, but I'm joined by two other people who are sitting in front of me looking resplendent in different parts of the country. I have um, Dee Constantine, which is a fantastic name, and Thank Carly you. Arnold. So, hi Dee, how are you? Hi, yeah, I'm Dee. Um, I use they them pronouns, and I am doing really good i am a fostering recruitment officer from southampton city council and hopefully here to do a little bit of chatting about what that means and supporting people with kind of understanding the process of being assessed for foster care a bit more today great and carly say hi hi um i'm carly arnold and i am the service lead for the fostering service in southampton and so i manage the foster carers and the fostering team who look after um, kind of all of our vulnerable children in Southampton. Fantastic. Now, when when you first started chatting, I was really quite, it hadn't, it hadn't crossed my imagination because I'm a little bit older than, you know, that, that fostering and adoption would be suitable, relevant, possible, practical for trans people, never mind the wider queer, queer community. So when we first chatted about it, it, it sort of really opened my eyes. And um, so firstly, let's talk a little bit about fostering adoption generally and then let's talk a little bit about um, this world and how, what the specific challenges or pitfalls might be so I mean what is the difference between a foster parent and, a, and an adoptive parent for example and, and why might you want to do it I can answer that one day um so obviously so fostering um is when we um assess and have carers that work for the council um, who offer care and homes to some of our vulnerable looked after children. Um, they support us in caring for those children. So um, Southampton City Council hold um, kind of parental responsibility um, for those children. Whereas if you were to adopt a child, um, the parental responsibility for those children would kind of transfer to those adopters, so they would then become that child's parents, if you like. Um, so that's kind of the difference, I suppose, between kind of fostering um, and adoption. And um, so we do have an adoption service in Southampton, and I don't manage that service as such. And um, so um, my kind of expertise is around around the fostering aspect. Okay, that's interesting. So why would anybody want to foster or adopt? at all i can say a little bit about this carly if you want um so i think most of the people that i speak to who are looking at fostering and adoption and um, particularly being a queer person myself and in the queer community it comes from a place of love i think and people really wanting to give back to their community and give back to children who have maybe not had the best start in life um and there's a lot I think that's the first thing that everyone kind of talks about, about really wanting to give children a life that is good and safe and gives them the space in order to heal and to grow and to potentially go back to their birth families if that's what's suitable and appropriate for them at the time. Um, I think most people have this kind of innate want to give good into the world and this is one of those ways that they can do that. That's interesting. And and is there an advantage to being a foster parent or an adoptive parent, or do you do one first and then the other? Is is there a is there a sort of a, a process that it's useful? Um, I think it's quite quite different, really, in terms of the roles. I think um, kind of 
becoming an adopter is you know you are taking on kind of that child in as in a permanent basis if you like you will become that child's um parents um so quite often people that are adopting are people um that haven't necessarily been able to kind of have their their own families um, and are kind of wanting to create that environment and um, whereas in in fostering um kind of the placements I would say potentially are a little bit more temporary so it could be that you're looking after a child for a short period of time to allow some work to happen with the child's birth family and for the child to go home to that um birth family or we might be looking at assessing other people within the child's birth family for them to go to or it might be that that child ends up remaining in care for kind of a longer period of time and so it's it's kind of the difference between kind of I guess short term and and permanence really in terms of the difference between the fostering and adoption roles. I must say that we do have oh sorry I was just going to add on to that that sometimes we do have foster carers who then go on to adopt their children (laughs) I actually conducted an exit interview with someone recently who has adopted three of the children that she fostered in her 36 years and it's absolutely wonderful to see those and there's so many ways that these families can kind of come together and uh, or you know the way that they kind of um develop and kind of evolve throughout the time of the young person's life can be in so so many different ways fascinating but and and forgive me for this but i sort of made the massive assumption that you know it's a sort of heteronormative sort of process you have to have the someone from the binary and the other traditional nuclear sort of approach to this um but are you telling me that's not necessarily the case anymore no um carly did you want to Say um, on that, or I can jump in about the assessment. Yeah, I think it's just, I think for us, um, you know, I think a lot of the kind of most important attributes that we look for in carers aren't really related to their gender or their sexuality. Um, and I think that that's the biggest thing for us is actually it's kind of their understanding, their, you know, want and desire to look after children, to offer support, um, you know their understanding of their own own self and identity and how that might impact on them as pair being you know offering that care but it's you know it, it's not linked to I say gender and sexuality there's so many other aspects that we would want to consider as part of kind of those assessments and what we look for. I think right. also in an interesting way kind of linking on to that point about self-actualization and self-identity there's a really interesting uh, strength I think that the trans community have in that we have often taken a very very long process and a lot of deep self-reflection about our sense of self-identity and we're yeah. often in you know at certain places where actually we've kind of been there done that and really kind of developed skills and strengths in having to do a lot of that work already that other people may not have ever encountered before and it could be a really big strength for supporting young people in care who also need kind of support and development of their own sense of self and sense of identity and confidence in their lives so I think that's a really interesting interplay that trans people have a unique uh, perspective on. Right that's fascinating so so you don't have to be white christian male female um fully abled no absolutely not so what we tend to find as well is that historically i think people have kind of had that expectation of fostering and adoption and i think often historically there has also been anecdotal 
evidence that as agencies and as local authorities, we, you know, using the idea that, you know, having a family that might not fit the traditional norm could be detrimental to a young person. So, for example, having gay parents could be seen as a difficult um, part to then, you know, be bullied about or be teased about. And I think there's anecdotal evidence to show that historically that's probably been used as a reason to not approve certain people for fostering and adoption. But we've come so far in the last few years, even just within the last few decades, to kind of really understand that actually there are a lot of strengths to this. And a lot of the young people that come into our service are so, so unique and they've all got different needs. They've all got different cultural backgrounds. They've all got different levels of additional needs and having foster carers that kind of have that multitude of experience and variation in their identity and their sense of self is really really key to being able to give these young people homes where they're understood and the patience is there to encourage them to be their full sense of self. That's fascinating because I suppose you need a a complete diverse range of carers to work with a diverse patient or client group I don't know what the correct term is there um so do you do you match queer people with queer children or is it just you're just looking for people who have the capacity and the facilities to love and to bring people up well is so so what are the criteria that you sort of look for so in terms of kind of matching we don't tend so as we kind of get to the approval through the approval process, if you like, and um, carers go to what we call our fostering panel. And that's where we kind of approve them as carers and consider kind of what would be their match. So it might be one child, two children, um, and specific age ranges, but um, we wouldn't really kind of specify within that, that, you know, if it was a, a, a queer family that they have to be matched with a, a queer child. Um, I don't think, that that would be effective um, yeah. I think the you know the needs of the children as, as Dee says is yeah. so diverse and the skills that carers bring are so different as well that actually it would be based on kind of the needs of the child and the skill of the carer as opposed to their their gender or their sexuality yeah that I mean it makes so much sense because yes that well, makes heck of a lot of sense but the thing I didn't understand also is that there are different types of foster care so um I mean, I've heard of the term respite care, but I wonder if you could take us through sort of three or four types of, because actually that's, again, as part of the choice of of the process, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, the, yeah, there's a number of um, kind of, like, as you say, types of care that people can um, be approved for. So we have respite care, which is um, where we have a child that may be already placed in a foster family, um, but that foster family... Um, kind of needs a little bit of a break um, or they've got, I don't know, a family wedding to go to. And so um, we would identify a respite carer to care for that child for those short periods of time. So it's quite often, say, one weekend a month or, you know, a week in the school holidays, you know. So it's really flexible with our, in terms of respite. Um, so people can still kind of work full time and then offer care at kind of weekends and school holidays. Um, we have short-term care, which is anything from kind of um, one month to two years is what we refer to as kind of short-term care placements. Um, we then have long-term care placements, which is kind of for as long as that child is, is needed to be in foster care. Um, 
we also have um, carers that are approved to kind of just offer emergency. So that's when we've got, you know, really difficult situations. We might have a child that's kind of um, come into, into the system at, you know, at one o'clock in the morning following an incident. And we need somebody that's available kind of there and then that evening just to offer that child a safe bed space to, you know, eat, sleep and allow us to do whatever work it is that needs doing. And then they kind of get moved on the following day. Um, And we also offer kind of some specialist placements. So we have parent and child foster placements. So that's where foster carers care for, say a, a, a baby but mum is in the placement alongside um so we might have a mum that is kind of struggling to meet the needs of a baby so they move into a placement together and the foster carer can then demonstrate to mum actually you know this is how you make a bottle this is how you bath baby um, and kind of work alongside mum to build their skills to enable them to kind of move on and and for that mum to be able to then or dad or whoever to um, be able to look after the child on their own yeah because i'm guessing uh, and forgive me because this massive assumption i'm about to make but i'm, I'm assuming that skills have moved on over the last 30 40 years since, since i was involved in that world so uh, you know is, is this i mean are you just thrown at the deep end uh, or, or is there some sort of support how does how do you how do you learn yourself how to be able to support a parent or a child I mean where, where, how does that work yeah so um as part of the um kind of assessment and recruitment process um we offer what we call our skills to foster training courses and um, so it's normally for um kind of two days and two evenings and um, and that's whilst people are going through the assessment process and um, and that goes through lots of different information about kind of the roles of a foster carer and the types of kind of presentations or behaviours that you might see when caring for a child and kind of the practical aspects about, um, you know, recording, finances, you know, all of those bits and pieces. And lots of information is kind of pulled out and explored through the assessment as well in terms of what skills um, the applicants may have. And then kind of following that kind of approval process, um, we offer quite an extensive training um, programme to carers um, that covers kind of everything you could ever imagine, really. Um, there's certain training that is mandatory for carers to complete. So they have to complete kind of like paediatric first aid um, safeguarding, safer caring information. So there's certain things that they have to do and then there's lots of um, different courses that people can do to kind of develop their skills or specialisms if there's certain things that they're particularly interested in knowing more about um, and that's something that we run and um, so we have a training officer within our service and they put on all of that training for our for our carers. Because I'm guessing you need also- a degree of social emotional support to me because I'm guessing you're dealing with um children who are coming in from slightly chaotic backgrounds or living situations not it's not their issue but you have to I suppose you have to a have the empathy but they have the skills to be able to deal with that side of things 
Yeah, so within that training package, um, we well, obviously we have the wonderful community of foster carers that we have that are really, really supportive of each other. Um, they're very, very close knit and we offer like, you know, coffee mornings that are a bit more kind of like friendly social events. We also offer more therapeutic services. So there is a therapeutic group that runs every Tuesday that people can kind of come along to and talk with um, therapeutic practitioners around sort of like particular behaviors or coping mechanisms that their children are experiencing so they can work alongside those but we also offer training around um, pace parenting which is a therapeutic type of parenting kind of stands I think it's playfulness um, acceptance curiosity and empathy and we know from kind of research and uh, ongoing anecdotal evidence around um that this kind of parenting works really well with young people who have experienced trauma because it kind of gives them the space to be able to kind of work through that emotional deregulation. So we offer training on that. And we also have a clinical psychologist on staff who can work more closely with um, foster carers, like debriefing around, you know, yeah. difficult um, challenging experiences or perhaps when placements are kind of wobbly so there's lots and lots of emotional support within the team oh and we also have family engagement workers that go out and do direct work with foster carers around sort of um, you know managing behaviors and also developing um, routines and things with children that can really help them get settled yeah. in their fostering placements. Because I'm guessing there's a complexity here if if a foster parent or an adoptive parent has their own children because actually that how you manage that must be challenging. So so effectively this wraparound s structure that you've got is is basically you can just sit down with someone and say, what about this, what about that? Like a sort of supervision type approach. Mm. Yeah, so all of our foster carers have allocated a um, supervising social worker that sit in the fostering team. Um, so they do the kind of direct one-to-one -one supervision with the foster carers. Um, that happens on kind of a minimum of a six six week basis but it can happen kind of more often if we need it to um, and within that part of the expectation is actually that the supervision is offered as a as a household if you like so it's to include any birth children or kind of anyone else that lives in that home to make sure that kind of everybody's needs are being um explored and understood within that yeah that's excellent so I'm guessing there might be complexities if you're queer or trans in particular in terms of the process. I wonder if you can take me through what those complexities might be and how they're dealt with. Yeah, so there are some complexities in with regards particularly to confidentiality and information sharing under the uh, GRA 2004. Um, and obviously there's quite specific limitations on what information can be shared under that. Um, but with regards to a fostering assessment, sometimes that information needs to be shared from a assessing social worker to their manager, for example, to supervise mm. how that assessment is going and kind of th some of the complexities that might come under that. But what we tend to do in those scenarios is to have it as a really open and collaborative conversation about ensuring that um, someone who is being assessed knows where this information is going and why it's being shared in the way that it's being shared. Um, with regards to sort of complexities around the actual assessment process, um, I think a lot of it kind of comes down to us ensuring that we're kind of approaching it in a really anti-oppressive way, um, because there will be elements of um, discussion around pre-transition, for example, uh, mm. what transition means to that person and how that is um, you know, potentially impacting certain things that they may experience in their fostering journey. But it is about kind of 
really assessing the parental capacity of someone as opposed to sort of you know the impacts of their different identities or things like that and for some people they may feel that their identity and their journey to their identity is much more impactful on their you know experience or parental methods than someone else and I think again it comes down to that really open and collaborative um, assessment process that enables someone to really be reflective on what that might means for them and actually for us to then kind of assess what that means to them as well um, but it's certainly kind of focusing on the parental capacity more than anything else and how something affects someone I think again the really interesting aspect of like being an LGBTQ person who is interested in fostering an adoption is actually there's a lot of kind of um, you know things to explore that with regards to how someone has developed within a, an oppressive world and within kind of the context of mm. experience potentially a lot of oppression and a lot of um, backlash to some things that you've experienced so mm. I think, again, there's that open and collaborative thing that needs to happen with the assessor and the person being assessed to really explore what that means for them. But again, there's nothing in there to say that, you know, just because you've experienced this, no, you couldn't ever be a fostering a foster carer or an adopter. Actually, you probably have a lot of strengths and resiliences that are really mm -hmm. key to being a fostering adopter that have come from those experiences that you've had. And I, I guess a lot of it is, again, having that conversation Um. I think also kind of like from our perspective um, with regards to sort of discrimination that someone's experienced is kind of understanding that again and how they've managed to kind of process themselves through that. Um, yeah. Sorry, I had a point around, um, oh, with regards to referencing as well. So when you yeah. are assessed as a foster carer, we do ask for um, generally three references per person so if you're in a couple that's six references um, and two of those would generally be family members and uh, four of them would be friends um, what we understand in the queer community is that sometimes we don't always have a wide support network because of oppression and discrimination that we face so we may not always have family who are around so mm -hmm. but what we do as a service is actually we kind of reflect on that with a person and kind of look at other avenues and other opportunities to gain similar referencing information in a different way so again it's looking at that anti-oppressive practice and ensuring that as many barriers that could be in place because of someone's identity are worked through as much as possible yeah that's absolutely fascinating and and You've said you've used this phrase four or five times, and it sounds to be the thing, which is parental capacity. So, what could you talk talk, talk me through a little bit about what that means? Because actually, what you're saying is it doesn't matter if you are anything as long as you have this parental capacity. So, can you tell me something about that? So, it's something that we um, explore quite deeply, obviously, within the assessment. So, it's talking about kind of the way that you were parented so remembering kind of your experiences as a child and um, and also looking at kind of any experience that people have had in terms of not necessarily caring for their own children but you know have they been involved in other children's lives what kind of role have they taken within that um, and a lot of it is around you know even if that you've had potentially a negative experience as a child yourself, it's about the learning and the insight that people have in terms of actually, this is what I've experienced. This is what I've taken from it. And actually this is how I feel it would impact me in being able to look after a child. And um, so that's kind of the, the real yeah. 
huge, I guess, part of the assessment that we spend a lot of time on and kind of uncovering with people because I think for us that that's really the important bit is understanding kind of your experiences and actually how those experiences are likely to impact your ability and you know your way of caring for, for somebody else so 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 i'm um, taken from that that actually life skills wisdom resilience those sorts of things learning continuous learning role modeling all those things are important and i know there's a minimum age of 21 to be a uh, a foster carer but is there a maximum age i mean what because it sounds like without getting too into the grandparents sort of confusion of age such like mm-hmm. but but is there an upper limit because it sounds like the, you know wisdom could be quite handy here yeah no yeah. absolutely there is there is no upper limit um to fostering we do have to obviously bear in mind um kind of the longevity of placement so you know yes. if you know it is somebody that is um kind of later in life and they're looking to care for a, a three-year-old kind of mm. throughout their minority, we would have to kind of take that into consideration. Yeah. Um, but we've got foster carers who are in their 70s um, and are, you know, absolutely unbelievable carers for us. Um, I think, as, as Dee said, um, we've just done an exit interview with one of our, I think she was 78 yeah 78 (laughs) she's just finished fostering with us after 35 years um but I think at the moment the majority of our foster carers are aged between about 55 and 65 that is kind of the 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 age range currently majority of our carers sit yeah and I'm guessing what happened with Ukraine and people coming over and finding people's houses has done a lot of good for this because it's probably opened the caring pool up in a way because people have had an experience of this in a, in a strange way. Um, um, last question sort of from me in a way, but um, just on the practical side, um, is there any financial support for this? Or is this going to cost me a huge amount of money to do this, like having to change my home, extend houses, invent, work out what PS3 is, whatever the iteration is, that's probably <laughs> not three anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, we offer um, financial support um, for all of our foster carers. Um, so there's kind of an, a number of different payment payment schemes um, that kind of we run with. So each foster carer will get um, what we call kind of a maintenance fee for the child. So that is um, the amount is dependent um, on the age of the child. Um, and that is what we would expect the foster carers to use for the children to kind of buy the food clothing you know pocket money savings all of that sort of um those things and then we also offer what we call um level fees so depending on kind of skill and experience of foster carers um then we have kind of an incremental scale um that carers can kind of work towards um in terms of um, additional things within the service so depending on kind of the complexity of the children that they're caring for or kind of their involvement with um, supporting us with kind of recruiting newer foster carers or buddying up with carers so there's there's lots of kind of different different avenues within it but um, no there's absolutely um, financial support that is provided. Brilliant. Well, I mean, we'll put links into places to find out more football information, but are, are, is there a specific thing or a place that you point people to to access resources or find out more information? 
Yeah, so there's a couple places. Um, people can either call on our number, which is 0800 519 1818, and you're more than likely to get through to me uh, mm -hmm. or my colleague Joe on that number. Um, people can also uh, email in uh, to fostering at southampton.gov.uk, um, or we also have an inquiry form on our website, uh, which will just be on www southampton.gov.uk forward slash fostering um, and you can put in your information on there and then I will get in contact via text or email or phone depending on what you prefer me to do really um, and I tend to be able to pick up phones uh, phone calls between nine and five but I'm around in the evenings as well for conversations so that's easier for people who are working. So so obviously you're based in Southampton, um, but we have listeners all over the place in fact including our very famous listener in Taiwan. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so obviously that people won't be able to to deal with you direct but can they go to a, a local center is there a national institution that trans people and queer people can go to is there is there a wider source of access as well um, so there's a very good organisation that we partner with called New Family Social um, that works specifically with LGBTQ fosterers and adopters. Uh, so they have a lot of information on their website. Otherwise, you can always get in touch with your own local authority um, who will be able to point you in the direction of their fostering services. All uh, local authorities or most local authorities will have their own fostering agency as well. So they'll be able to work with you in, in getting you assessed. Wow. That sounds brilliant. All right, then. So any final thoughts, Carly? Anything that you wish to have said that you haven't said so far? Um, I'm going to ask you the same question in a second, Dee, but uh, I'll, ask, I'll put Carly straight on the spot first. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, we just absolutely would encourage anybody that's even, you know, just got a tiniest kind of thought about, oh, could it be for me? Please do give us a call or your local authority a call. Um you know, even if it doesn't go anywhere, you know, we'd absolutely love to have conversations with people. And um, I think, you know, moving forward, we absolutely need to be increasing the diversity of our fostering communities. Um, and that's something that we are just absolutely striving to achieve. Brilliant. And well, same question to you, Dee. Yeah, I think, again, echoing on what Carly said, we're really keen to improve the diversity of our fostering cohort and to be able to give the children and young people in our service a more um, various range of like people who are able to support them, which is just in increasing foster carers in general, but also um, tapping into a lot of those wonderful skills and resiliences that people have out there. And I think some people think that you need to be absolutely perfect to be a foster carer, and that is not the case whatsoever. Um, you know, these children need loving, patient homes at the end of the day, and you don't need to be perfect to do that. Um, and certainly, even if you don't have a spare bedroom, please do get in contact with us because there's other ways you can get involved with helping children in care. And I'm more than happy to kind of signpost and help support you to figure out what's best for you to be able to do that. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't even need to be specifically about fostering. Please do get in touch for information about many other opportunities. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I think it's been absolutely eye opening. And I'm actually thinking, well. That's quite yeah. exciting. You know, <laughs> why not? Brilliant. Maybe this time, maybe this time I could do it right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Transvox. It's been a joy to have you with us. Um, if you want to um, make contact with us, you can contact us at gillian at transvox.co.uk. And if you'd like to support the work we do, please go to Patreon and go to page Transvox. And all of our money goes to our nominated charity. And Jen, you've chosen the charity for the next number of episodes. Which one have you chosen? Our charity is called Beyond Reflections, which is a charity that provides support and counselling to trans people, non-binary people and their friends and their families across the UK. An amazing charity doing some amazing work, really important. So please, if you can give. Great. And if you want to go and have a look at Beyond Reflections, it's beyond-reflections.org.uk. And uh, But as I say, if you'd like to make a contribution to what we're doing, because we love to help the people who help us. Uh, again, if you've got ideas for um, the show, things you'd like to ask us, questions, comments, applause, or um, brickbats, feel free to send it all Absolutely. in to Gillian at transvox.co.uk. Until the next time, goodbye. Bye-bye.